Why don't you go ahead and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 7 with me this morning. 2 Samuel chapter 7. Many of you know that I actually uh, first found Christ when I was a freshman in college. And uh, by the time I had... um, Got to be a junior. I was struggling a little bit with what I was going to do and where I was going to go. I was actually in a computer science program. That's kind of what I thought I wanted to do with my with my life. And um, I'd gotten saved, and I was spending time in Campus Crusade for Christ. I was um, I had become a leader in the movement there, and um, was really thinking a lot more about ministry. So, I, end of my junior year, I decided I didn't want to stay in computer science anymore. I think I was one class away from graduating with my major or finishing my major up, and I decided that I wanted to go into Christian radio and television. So I changed my career, my uh, major, to uh, telecommunications, and uh, one of the first things I did was I started a um, Christian radio show on the campus radio station, which is rather unusual because um, it had not been done up until that point, and at that time Christian music was... Um, I wouldn't say in its infancy, but there just wasn't a whole lot of what I'll call modern Christian music. And so I was doing a lot of work and digging up a lot of that stuff. And so there's a lot of stuff that I was doing on the show that you wouldn't have heard anywhere else because you couldn't hear it anywhere else. And um, so I really thought that's what I wanted to do with my with my life was to become a disc jockey and do Christian music. And so um, I had gotten an internship at uh, one of the largest Christian radio stations in the nation. In fact, it was the first AM stereo station in the nation. And so I was uh, doing an internship with them for almost a year and um, got to interview almost all of the uh, presidential candidates at the time. And it was kind of a neat experience. And so it even grew that desire to go into Christian radio. And so that's what I thought I was going to do. So I talked to the owner of the station and they recommended, they said, you know what, Um, we think you need to go out and get secular experience because we need more of that in the Christian world because at that time much of the Christian radio stations were all talk, mom and pop type stuff and they weren't very technical, they weren't very, um, the quality wasn't always great and so he said we need more people and that was one thing that made this radio station such a success was the guys that had, um, the, the owner of the station and he and his wife, she was the host of a television, nationally televised radio, or television show during primetime television on one of the major networks called PM Magazine and his wife was the host and so they brought a lot of that experience in and this was a neat, neat radio station because it was extremely technical, um, very polished and um, so they said go out, get some experience and come back in. So that's what I did. I moved to Wausau. I took a job at a secular radio station in town. I then went to Wausau, Wisconsin um, sort of working in sales and marketing and writing commercials and producing commercials and that and um, was hoping to get back on the air um, because I thought that's what God wanted me to do. Well, in Wausau, you know I happened to meet my mentor, Pastor Krenz. Started being discipled by him, and through that process, my desire to start teaching grew significantly. And so I actually um, decided to go on staff with Campus Crusade for Christ. And um, I was accepted to do that. I was accepted to go along with Josh McDowell. Josh McDowell did this thing where he would take students or take others along with him um, as he would travel around the nation, and he would bring videotape equipment and audio equipment, and he would record you and train you to be a speaker much like himself. And so I had been accepted to do that. And about two weeks before that happened, Pastor Krenz looked at me and he said, So... 
what do you really want to do with your life? And I said, I want to teach. And so he posed a question. He said, do you want to teach every week in a different place with people you've never seen before? Or would you rather teach a group of people that you see on a regular basis and have a much more significant impact on their lives? And I looked at him and said, I never really thought about that. Ended up in seminary. Why do I bring this up? Well, I had these plans where I thought God wanted me to do one thing. Then I thought he wanted me to do something else. And then I discovered that he actually had something else in mind for me. And um, I thought about that as I looked at this passage with David today. You see, sometimes our plans don't necessarily line up with God's plans. And it doesn't mean that they're not good plans. It doesn't mean that they're unimportant. It doesn't mean that they're not God-honoring. You know, we have ideas of things we want to do, places we want to go. We oftentimes think about, well, I think God wants me to do this. But the reality is that sometimes God has other things in mind for us. He has other plans for us. That was not only the case with my life, but apparently, as we look at this passage today, or clearly I should say, it was God's plan for David's life. David had finally become king. He decides he wants to do something, and that something is to build a temple for the Lord. So he has this grandiose plan to build a house, a temple, a permanent dwelling place for the Lord. But the Lord actually had other plans for him. So we're going to look at that today at 2 Samuel chapter 7. The first thing we're going to see in this passage here is David's plans to build a temple and the fact that God rejected it. Let's look at the first three verses of chapter 7. Now it came about when the king lived in his house that the Lord had given him rest on every side from all his enemies. And the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells within tent curtains. Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your mind, for the Lord is with you. So David here has this purpose and this plan. He wants to build a temple, a permanent place. And he receives Nathan's blessing to actually do that. You see, David, it says he was living in his own palace. If you remember chapter 5, King Hiram of Tyr had built him a palace. And based on what we know about Phoenician building, it was probably a very elaborate palace. So David's sitting there in this beautiful house, thinking, well, this really isn't right, because he's looking out and he sees the tent that he had put in place to hold the, co- the, coven- or the Ark of the Covenant. If you remember, they had moved the Ark of the Covenant. The tabernacle was still in another location. But they moved the Ark to Jerusalem, and David put up a tent to house it. So it wasn't even in the tabernacle. So David now wants to build this new temple. He's feeling a little bit bad because he's actually living in a splendid palace, and he's thinking, that's not right if I should live here. But the Lord's living in a tent. So David felt it was only right to actually build it. And the thing we see here is that Nathan the prophet actually says, oh, that's a good idea. Go and do it. And even says, the Lord's with you to do that. So he has the approval of the prophet, the man of God, right? But the Lord evidently had other plans because he rejects David's offer to build him a temple. Look at verses 4 through 7. But on the same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Are you the one who should build me a house to dwell in? For I have not dwelt in a house since the day I brought up the sons of Israel from Egypt, even to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent, even in a tabernacle. Wherever I have gone with all the sons of Israel, did I speak a word with one of the tribes of Israel, which I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? 
we immediately see two issues with David's plan here. The first one is that Nathan, whom he spoke with, presumed to speak on God's behalf, obviously without consulting him. I don't know how, I don't really know that that's a grievous sin or an error. It all made sense. Well, this is honoring to God. It's, it's pleasing to him. And so the Nathan the prophet told David, the Lord's with you, but he evidently didn't check with the Lord about it because the Lord had other plans. The second was that David also failed to consult the Lord. I think this is interesting because there are at least seven times that David consults the Lord that we're told before he does things. And this is one instance where he didn't and he got it wrong. Again, I'm not saying it's a grievous sin. It's just sometimes we're the same way. We just, you know, God wants me to do this and we start to move forward. We assume that we have God's blessing and God's commands and we haven't stopped to simply ask Him, is this what you want me to do? And so neither David nor Nathan had done that. We're also told in the text here that the Lord rejected David's plans to build this temple for two reasons. Look at verse 4. It says, Are you the one who should build me a house to dwell in? The whole point of this particular question here, and he does this really by asking David two questions. His two objections are based on the two questions. The first one is that. Are you the one who should build me a house? It's a rhetorical question. We know the answer to that is, well, obviously, no. He's already going to tell David here not to. In 1 Chronicles chapter 22, David told his son Solomon that the primary reason God didn't want him to build the temple was because he was a man of war. I want you to turn to 1 Chronicles chapter 22 with me. We have the parallel account in some respects of David's life in 1 Chronicles. This is not necessarily one of them. This is at the end of his life, but it gives us insight into what the Lord had spoken to David. 1 Chronicles chapter 22, just a couple of verses here. Verse 8. But the word of the Lord came to me, this is David speaking to his son Solomon, saying, You have shed much blood and have waged great wars. You shall not build a house to my name because you have shed so much blood on the earth before me. Behold, a son will be born to you and shall be a man of rest. And I will give him rest from all his enemies on every side, for his name shall be Solomon, and I will give, you, give peace and quiet to Israel in his days. He shall build a house for my name and he shall be my son and I will be his father and I will establish the throne on his kingdom over Israel forever. And so basically, David says that one of the Lord's objections to him here was that he was a man of war. He had shed a lot of blood. Now, that's not to say that that was sin. It's not to say that that was necessarily a bad thing. It's just that God had called David for that purpose. He was a man of war. He wasn't an architect. He wasn't a man of peace that was supposed to concentrate on doing anything other than rescuing and saving Israel from their enemies. And that involves shedding of blood. The Lord wanted his house, if you will, to be built in a time of peace. Well, that wouldn't come until Solomon. In fact, David, and we're going to learn this as we go through the rest of this book, David was constantly at war with somebody. He had times of peace. In fact, at this time it says that God had given him rest from his enemies all around. But immediately after sinning with Bathsheba, his house falls apart and he begins to be at battle within his own family. And so the Lord did not permit David to build a house because that wasn't what he called him to do. He called him to be a man of war to protect Israel. He had shed a lot of blood and the Lord said, I want my house built in a time of peace. So that's the first reason. The second reason is found in verse 7. Notice it says, Wherever I have gone with the sons of Israel, did I speak a word with one of the tribes of Israel, which I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, Why haven't you built me a house yet? In other words, the Lord says, I'm not going to let you build a house because I didn't ask for a house to be built. I've been fine living in a tent. I never asked in the 500 year history of leading my people out of Egypt 
David, I never asked for a house. I never commanded you to build a house. I don't need a house. And as we find, he also told David, that'll happen with Solomon. Your son will take care of that. And so the two primary reasons are, he didn't assign it to David to do, because David was a man of war, but he also didn't ask for it to be done. God had other plans. We'll see that revealed again in Second Chronicles chapter 6. There's a number of verses there, we won't turn to it, but on what the Lord's plan was to have Solomon, somebody else, build his house. So basically, the first thing we learn from this passage is David had these, these plans that appear on the surface to honor God. I mean, even his heart, you look at it, you know, he's in his own house, he's thinking, this isn't right, the Lord deserves better than this. So it's all good, it's all honorable, it just wasn't the Lord's plan and purpose for David. And I think sometimes that might be the case with us. We make these plans or we take these directions. We head in a certain direction or whatever and we don't necessarily know whether or not it lines up with what the Lord wants. I'm reminded of the Apostle Paul as he tried to go to Rome. You know, he had plans. He wanted to go to Rome. But yet he said the Lord pretty much kept him from going to Rome. He finally got to go to Rome, but in a whole different way. Very similar here. Now, there's another part of this that I think um, puts all this into perspective, and it's what happens next. And it's that the Lord reveals His divine purpose and plan for David. So while he didn't have plans for David to build him a home, as David thought, he had something totally different in mind for David. And from my perspective, it was much more grandiose, much more significant than David's plan. I'm going to cover the passage in a second, but I want to just touch on a couple of things first. God will reveal this plan to David through something that we call the Davidic Covenant. You've all heard of that, the Davidic Covenant. It's a covenant, a promise, a, a relationship that the Lord entered into with David. And this is probably the most or one of the most important covenants in the whole entire Bible. This particular passage here is probably one of the most important in the whole entire Old Testament. A number of reasons for that. I'm going to read a couple of quotes here. I don't do this a lot. I, I obviously um, listen to what other scholars say, but I don't always quote them to you because it can be a little dry, and oftentimes um, you might not know who these individuals are. But I think it's important for us to look at what others have said about this particular passage before we dive into it. Walter Kaiser, he's a Hebrew scholar, suggests that it's one of the four great moments in Bible history. He lists those as God's promise to Abraham, the new covenant described by Jeremiah, and the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he adds, this one is probably one of those top four most important passages in the whole entire Bible. There's another scholar, Ronald Youngblood, he referred to it as the center and focus of all of Old Testament history. It's almost as if this kind of becomes the climax of Old Testament history. Which kind of makes sense, considering it's really the climax of all history, When it actually happens, in other words, there's elements of this Davidic covenant. This passage foreshadows the coming of Christ, which is ultimately the apex or the climax of human history. And so he says this, of the whole entire Old Testament, is probably the primary climax, the primary passage. Walter Brueggemann, another one, claimed that God's words to David here are the most critical theological statements in the Old Testament. Roger Robert Bergen, who's happened to be the commentary that I rely on for some of the more complicated issues in this particular book, 
wrote that the Davidic covenant became the nucleus around which messages of hope proclaimed by the Hebrew prophets of later generations were built. The significance of the eternal covenant between the Lord and David found in this passage was for New Testament writers, or for New Testament writers, cannot be overemphasized because these words played an essential preparatory role in developing the messianic expectations that were fulfilled in Christ. I know that's a lot of words, but basically what he's saying is this passage, by the time we get to the New Testament, the expectation that they had for Messiah was built upon this passage, which is why it is so important. I'll make one other last reference to him. He said, The Lord's words recorded here arguably play the most single or single most significant role of any scripture found in the Old Testament in shaping the Christian understanding of Jesus. And this passage became the foundation for at least seven major New Testament teachings about Christ. He'd be a son of David, he would rise from the dead. He would build God's house. We know that to be the church. He would possess a throne. He would possess an eternal kingdom. He would be the Son of God. He would be the product of divine conception, meaning that God would be His Father. You don't need to remember all those, but you can see that's Christ. And this passage foreshadows all of that. And so it basically forms the foundation of for what we find in the New Testament as it relates to Jesus Christ. Each of these eight, is it seven of them, seven things I just mentioned, are found in Christ. And it's all established on this passage. Dave uh, Malin one time came up to me. You know that my habit has always been to try to go back and forth in some respects between the Old Testament and the New. Um, I love the Old Testament because it foreshadows Christ. We're told in the New Testament that it's the tutor to lead us to Christ. We can't ignore what's in the Old Testament. People that approach the Old Testament with sort of this humdrum, it's the Old Testament, are missing the majesty of finding Christ in the Old Testament. In fact, I've got a book at home, I haven't read it yet. It's about that big. It's written by a Jewish Christian who highlights the fact that the Old Testament ultimately is a book about the Messiah because there's a huge push within evangelical circles today as Andy Stanley said, to decouple or to unhitch themselves from the Old Testament, that we should spend all of our time or most of our time in the New Testament. Well, Dave Malin came up to me, this was, I don't know, quite a few months ago, and he said, I get it. I get it now. It's like one big story. The Old Testament right into the New. And that's exactly what we're looking at today in this passage. And so all of these foundational truths about Christ can be found in today's passage. So I'd say it's one of the most important passages in the entire Old Testament because it's the foundation for the coming of Messiah and what we know to be true in Jesus Christ. So, there's three elements in this covenant today that we're going to look at as God reveals this to David. The first element of this covenant is that the Lord promises to make David a great name. I want to look at verses uh, 8 and 9. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 8 through 9, he says, Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, he's talking to Nathan here, supposed to reveal this to David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be a ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and have cut off your enemies from before you, and I will make you a great name like the names of the great men who are on the earth. 
So basically, he promises to make David's name great. He took David when he was just a shepherd and made him a king. That's pretty cool. He defeated and cut off David's enemies. That's pretty cool, too. But then he says he's going to give David a legacy. He's going to give him a great name. In fact, he says one of the greatest names on all the earth. Now, all of these things were, in many respects, accomplished in David's lifetime. He was well known by the end of his life. So God fulfilled much of this in David's lifetime. But we know that that really wasn't the end of it. Even by today's standards, David has still got a great name. In fact, um, some great military commanders have studied David's life because he was a great military man. Even today, there's debate over whether he existed. I, I find that to be rather fascinating. Not too long ago, there was an area discovered where they believe um, they have further evidence of the city of David. And it's interesting to watch some of the secular scholars say, well, that would be all cool if he really existed. And I think to myself, how could such a man with such a reputation, someone who is known not just here, but in, in, you know, all over the world, didn't exist? I, I guess you could you know, liken it to things like you know, Merlin the Magician that was a character, but that's, this is historical. And so David, God fulfilled this to David, made his name great. We still know him today, obviously because of the scriptures, but even through archaeological things, his name stands out. So the first element here of this covenant was that the Lord would make David's name great. So while David was thinking, I just want to build a house for the Lord, the Lord's thinking, yeah, but i got something much bigger in mind. I'm, I'm going to build you into a great name. The second element here is that the Lord promised to establish Israel safely and securely in her own land. Look at verses 10 and the first part of 11. He says, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and I will plant them that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again, nor will the wicked afflict them any more as formerly. Even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel and I will give you rest from all your enemies. So the second element of this covenant is that the Lord would establish a place for Israel, would put Israel there, and would give her complete rest from all of her enemies. Later prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah understood this promise to refer to a future eschatological time where the Messiah would reign over Israel. We know as we look at the book of Revelation, chapter 20, that that's a direct reference to the millennial reign of Christ. What we're told is that ultimately Jesus Christ will return. He will take up a physical residence here. That will be in Israel. And he will sit on a throne and govern this earth for a thousand years as the perfect king over all of the earth. And during that thousand years, there will be a time of perfect peace. It focuses on Israel, because that's where he'll be. Israel will not be impacted by their enemies. They will live in peace as will the rest of us. We know what happens at the end of that. The enemy is released. And to be real frank, there's a very quick battle, and Christ squashes him like a bug. But that's what he promises here. So as a second part of this covenant with David, he says, I'm not just going to make your name great, but I'm going to also prepare a place for Israel. I'm going to fulfill all of my Old Testament promises to Israel, give them the land, make them prosperous, They'll have their king. They'll live in peace. I will fulfill all of my promises in a literal, historical sense to my people Israel. 
That's the second part of this covenant. Now, the third part of the covenant, this third element, is even better than that. The first one was pretty cool, David getting a name. The second is even better, Israel getting a place and perfect peace. But this is the one that impacts us the most. The third element of this promise was that the Lord would establish a kingdom, an eternal kingdom, and an eternal king through David. Look at the second half of verse 11. It says, The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. That's a reference to a, a kingdom. The context indicates that the house here should be understood as a royal dynasty, a line of successive kings, David's descendants that would ultimately end with specifically one descendant that we know to be Jesus Christ. Verse 16, we learn two important things about this dynasty. If you look at verse 16 with me, jump all the way down there. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. So he says it would be an eternal dynasty or kingdom. It would last forever. But also it would serve as a divine purpose. He said it would endure before me forever. It wasn't just about blessing David, but it was about God's plan and purpose. And so he says, I'm going to make an eternal kingdom that will be enduring before me forever through you, David. He says he would raise up a descendant. Look at verse 12. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up for you a descendant after you. One who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he will also be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and with strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him, and I, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. So the Lord, he says here, would raise up a descendant. And that's a singular word. It's the word seed. Not descendants, which we know he would rise up for David, but he's saying, I'm going to specifically raise up one descendant for you, upon which I'm going to establish this eternal kingdom. He says it would come about after David's death. It's a future descendant, obviously. He said it would be future in scope. But you notice also that it changes from your kingdom to his kingdom. In other words, he's not talking as much about David's kingdom now as he's talking about the kingdom of this future seed, this future descendant of David. But also he says that this descendant, this seed, is actually going to be the one who's going to build the temple, which is rather strange. Remember he told David, somebody else is going to build it. It's going to be one of your descendants. We think he's talking about Solomon. We'll find out in a minute he kind of of was and kind of wasn't. Verse 13 here, he says, He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. A couple of things that I want to point out there. The first one is that this house, we're going to find out, is a spiritual house. It actually refers to the church. But he also says that this house will be for my name. It won't be for David's name. It'll be for the Lord's name. 
So we have this interesting shift, and there's there's no concrete black and white lines where he says, I'm talking about two houses here, I'm talking about two kingdoms here. It's all kind of blurs together, but what it is is it's that it sort of starts with David, and he'll have a great name, and he'll have a kingdom, a dynasty. There'll, there'll be a house... Solomon will build that, but there's a better house, and it's a spiritual house, and there's a spiritual kingdom, and, and there's this other seed. Boy, that's the magic and the mystery of the scriptures sometimes. So this descendant, he says, will build an eternal temple. Not an earthly, but an eternal Verses 14 and 15, he speaks additional things about this descendant. He says, I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Now there's two important aspects about this specific statement here. The first one is that the Lord will have a uniquely personal relationship with David's descendant. A uniquely personal relationship with him. It will be one like a father and a son. The second is that it would be a permanent relationship. It would never end. So, as you're looking at this, and as you're thinking about this, we wonder, how does this all work out? Well, there are some aspects of this covenant that are fulfilled in Solomon, and there's others that were not. A fancy way to describe this is we refer to it as double fulfillment. There are prophecies in the Old Testament that God intends to fulfill not just once, but more than once. There are things that he says that apply to not just current situation, but future situation. This is one of those times. There's some, in some respects, double fulfillment or double meaning found in this. Some aspects of this covenant were fulfilled in Solomon, while others were not. The Lord specifically identified Solomon as the immediate descendant of David that would take the throne and build a physical temple. I want you to turn to 1 Chronicles chapter 28. 1 Chronicles chapter 28. I'm going to read, I don't know, about half a dozen verses here. 1 Chronicles chapter 28, starting in verse 3. This is again, David talking to his son Solomon shortly before David died, David had been, even though he couldn't build the Lord's temple, had been collecting the materials so that Solomon could build the temple. And there's a reason why he did that. Um, It was rather interesting. I came across an article where people were um, writing about this. They were trying to say that David was still being disobedient because the Lord told him, you're not going to build my temple. But David was still collecting materials to do it. And so the article was sort of slamming David, saying he was still in disobedience. And I thought to myself, no, because the Lord told him, your son's going to do it. So David was preparing for that. If David would have collected materials and then built it himself, that would be sin. So it says in verse 3, But God said to me, You shall not build a house for my name, because you are a man of war and have shed blood. Yet the Lord of God of Israel chose me from all the house of my father to be king over Israel forever. For he chose Judah to be a leader, and in the the house of Judah, my father's house, and among the sons of my father, he took pleasure in me to make me king over Israel. Of all my sons, for the Lord has given me many sons, he has chosen my son Solomon 
to sit on the throne of the kingdom of the Lord over Israel. He said to me, Your son Solomon is the one whom shall build my house and my courts. For I have chosen him to be a son to me, and I will be a father to him. I will establish his kingdom forever if, notice the if, if he resolutely performs my commandments and my ordinances as is done now. So now in the sight of all Israel, the assembly of the Lord, and in the hearing of our God, observe and seek after all the commandments of the Lord your God, so that you may possess the good land and bequeath it to your sons after you forever. As for you, my son Solomon, know the Lord of your father, and serve him with a whole heart and a willing mind, for the Lord searches all hearts and understands every intent of the thoughts. If you seek him, he will let you find him. If you forsake him, he will reject you forever. Consider now, for the Lord has chosen you to build a house for the sanctuary. Be encouraged and act. Now you notice there's some differences here in what David says the Lord communicated to him and what we found back in 2 Samuel. In 2 Samuel we're told, this will be a forever kingdom. I will not forsake this son. But in this passage you have the ifs. You have the warnings from David to Solomon. And again, the reason for that is, part of what God had communicated to David applied to Solomon. Other parts applied to the future descendant that would become Christ. So as we look at this, there were conditions for Solomon. Solomon could build the Lord's house, but it would only be a physical temple. Solomon was promised that he would have a kingdom that would last forever if he obeyed. That's the, the section for 1 Samuel 7 here where the passage says, I will be a father to him and a son to me when he commits iniquity in verse 14. I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of men. That applies to Solomon. The Lord would be like a father to him. He would correct him when he would sin. And he did. And there were warnings given to Solomon. Now we know that Solomon didn't obey the Lord and instead forsook him. And it says here that the Lord ended Solomon's kingdom at his death. It split. Still had descendants, obviously. But his kingdom effectively ended with his death and it became multiple kingdoms. North and south split. Israel and Judah went to war at one another. That has not been brought back together yet. It will during the Millennial Kingdom. So clearly Solomon wasn't the ultimate fulfillment. He wasn't the ultimate seed or the descendant of God that he was referring to when he made this covenant with David. He was a temporary, building a temporary temple. There is one, however, who does fulfill the other parts of this. And we know that to be Jesus Christ. We know by looking at Matthew's genealogy that he was a physical Jesus was a physical descendant of David he was the seed promised I want you to turn to Luke chapter 1 we'll bounce around a couple of these Luke chapter 1 Luke chapter 1 verse 35 the angel answered and said to her the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you And for that reason, the holy child shall be called the Son of God. That's exactly what David told Solomon. Look at uh, chapter 4, verse 41. Demons were coming out of many, shouting, You are the Son of God! 
But rebuking them, he would not allow them to speak because they knew him to be the Christ, the Messiah, the seed of David. Elsewhere, when the Holy Spirit descends upon David, we hear the Lord say, This is my Son, in whom I am well pleased. And so we see that Christ is the ultimate fulfillment of part of the Davidic covenant, where the Lord told David, He will be a son to me. Look at Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26, I believe it's verse 61. I tell you, Matthew's got some of the longest chapters. The chapter divisions were actually added by scribes later, so it wasn't Matthew's fault. But Matthew chapter 26, verse 61. Notice what Jesus says. I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. Kind of a reference to himself, ultimately, or the temple of his body. But turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Do you not know that you are the temple of God? The one thing we know is that God does not need a physical temple at this point because we, as the church, are His temple. That's the temple that the seed would make. God does not need to dwell in physical stones. He dwells within us. And so when He's talking to David back in 2 Samuel 7, and He promises that this seed will build him a house, will build him a temple, He's not talking about a physical temple there. That was short-term in Solomon. Instead, he's referring to us as the church. The Lord would build a new temple for God, and that's us as the church. Notice, he also tells him he would serve as a king. We know that's the case. I won't make you turn there, but Revelation chapter 20 makes it very clear that Jesus will serve as a king. In fact, he will be the only ruler in history to ever rule as king over all of God's creation. The last thing I want to point out is that Jesus' kingdom is an eternal kingdom. I want you to turn back to Matthew 19. Oops. Matthew 19. Twenty-eight and twenty-nine. Matthew 19, 28 and 29. And Jesus said, Truly I say to you that you who have followed me in the generation when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mothers or children or farms for my name's sake will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. He's talking about his kingdom there. This eternal Kingdom. We know that after the millennial reign, when he squashes the enemy, it says God recreates the heavens and the earth. And we get to reign with Christ forever in his kingdom. And so we see as we look at this, what the Lord was promising to David was not just that he'd have a great name, 
Not just that Israel would be given all of the things that the Lord had promised them, but that ultimately, built upon David, as one of his descendants, the Lord would actually accomplish his redemptive plan. It was all built on the foundation of what God would do for David and through David through the Davidic covenant. That's why this passage is probably the most or one of the most critical passages in the whole entire Old Testament. Because it's the hinge, it's the climax of God's redemptive plan. And so we can see as we look at chapter 7 there, some short-term promises given to David, things like making his name great, letting his son Solomon build a physical temple, But there's so much more to that. Let me ask a couple of questions. Aren't you glad that the Lord's plan and purpose were different than David's? Think about that for a moment. Aren't you glad that God's plan and purpose was so much more significant and glorious than what David's plans were? David's plans were good. God obviously wanted Solomon to build him a temple. He hadn't asked for it up until this point. So David's plan, it was a good, honorable thing to build a temple for the Lord. His heart was in the right place. David's legacy could have been that he was simply a great king who built a pretty cool temple for the Lord. That would have been a pretty neat thing, right? You know? We do the thing now where we put people's names on buildings, you know? It's kind of their legacy. We did that at Grace with some of the buildings, you know? The Army Center and... And then naming the uh, early childhood center, I think it was after, or the new center after Jim Custer. Those are honorable things. Those are good things, right? That could have been David's legacy. If God just simply let David do what David wanted to do. Instead, David's legacy is that he was the ancestor and the foreshadowing, the type of the great king. He's the one on on whom God established his grand redemptive plan for all of mankind. God's plan was so much more awesome than what David's was. The other thing I noticed about this is that David's plan was really earthly, wasn't it? He was interested in a place for God to dwell on this earth, but the Lord's plan was both earthly and eternal. In other words, he promised David some earthly things, but the bulk of his plans for David were all spiritual in nature, and eternal in nature. I think about that when it comes to us sometimes. And I don't mean this in a disparaging way, but David's plans were somewhat short-sighted. All he could see in front of him was the Lord's purpose here on earth. All he could see was the Lord's, you know, I've got this, this tent and he's living in a tent and the Lord's presence is down there. And So David's focus was primarily on the earth. We can't fault him for that because God's promises to Israel were earthly. But his promises to mankind go beyond that. And so David was a little bit short-sighted in that all he could really see in front of him was God's plan and purpose or what he thought was God's plan and purpose for his life in an earthly sense. I think we ever do that? Let me ask you this. How much time do you spend thinking about or planning for what you want out of life. You know, we have some that are graduating and going off to college, and they think, where do I go to college? And what do I do for a career? My daughter Kimberly is struggling with that. She's, you know, trying to figure it out. We think about getting married someday and what God wants for that. And 
Where do we live? Where, what city do we move to? What job do we take? Those things all consume us, and those aren't bad things. We have to make those decisions, don't we? We have to know that. We've got we to live in this world, right? But it consumes so much of our time. Do most of those things that concern us or take up our time focus on earthly things or eternal things? Generally, more earthly things. In fact, you know, you hear this, you know, this phrase or this question often, how do I determine God's will for my life? And most of the time, what people mean by that is, what, what do I do here and now? And again, not a bad thing, but it's a bit short-sighted. Because the Lord's plans oftentimes go well beyond that, do they not? How often do we pause and ask the Lord what His plans for us are, not just in this earthly life, but how those plans and things fit into His eternal plan and His purpose? I had to make those decisions as I was going through college. I began to struggle a little bit. I had loved computer work. I mean, I had done computer stuff since I was... I think in the 6th or 7th grade. I was ahead of the curve. You know, we didn't have personal computers sitting on every desk. I was programming on a, on a school system mainframe where the whole entire school system in the area all shared one computer that sat in a building somewhere. And I would get on a deck writer, they called it, where you type on keyboards and just paper spewing out of it because you didn't have a screen to look at, you know? I loved that kind of stuff. And so I got to grow up and learn. And and the first um, personal computers that came out, I was learning how to program in machine code, which was basically using letters and numbers, not words. And it was exciting. It was a cool time to be doing that. And so I went off to college and I thought, this is what I want to do with my life. I love this. It's almost kids getting addicted to video games today. That was me. I would sit in the computer lab. We had three computers in our computer lab at school. Nobody ever heard of them. CompuDyne was one of the... Or CompuColor was the name of one of them. You don't even hear of them anymore. It wasn't an, an Apple PC. It wasn't a, an IBM like they have today. There was no mouse or anything, you know. But, man, you, that's where you would find me. If I wasn't in swim team practice, I was in the computer lab figuring stuff out. There was no internet to go to figure stuff out. And so I loved this stuff. That's what I wanted to do for a living. But by the time I was a junior, after I'd been saved for a few years, I began to think a lot more about... What does does God want for my life? And that's what led me to think maybe Christian radio and television. I started to think about God using my life in more of an eternal way than just for me here on earth. When I made the decision to go off to seminary, it was a decision by asking, where does the Lord want me to go? That's why I was so willing to switch from crusade to go off into seminary. It was because I sensed, you know what, maybe that's really what the Lord wants. It isn't so much about me as it would be Him. You know, our lives as disciples of Christ are supposed to be an extension of this Davidic covenant. They really are. Think about it. Because the Lord said that He ultimately would have this descendant, Jesus Christ, build Him a temple. We know that Jesus said that we, we, the church, are that temple. So we are naturally a part of this Davidic covenant, are we not? We're part of the house that He's promised to build. But we're also supposed to be a part of it because we are supposed to help build the house. Which really means that our lives, what we do, our purpose, the things that we we think about, should ultimately be tied to God's divine purpose or His plan. Which means, much like David, I think we can sometimes be a little short-sighted when we focus only on the earthly things or only on 
doing those things that we want to do. Instead of stopping and saying, you know, Lord, I'd like to do these things. Some of these things I think are good for you, Lord. I, I want to do this, I want to do that, and I want to do it for you. But maybe we need to stop and say, Lord, but I really want you to help me figure out what I should do because it's what you want me to do. Now, I'll admit, that's not always easy. Meaning, God doesn't always speak to us in a big, loud, booming voice. You should go to Cedarville, you know. You should become this or that. But I still think we need to pause and stop and at least ask the question. Sometimes God does reveal those things. He did with me. He made it black and white that I needed to go to seminary. Not because I heard his voice, but because somebody said, you know what, I'd like you to go. I think you'd be good at it. And by the way, we want to pay for it. Oh, okay. You know, must be where he wants me to go. And so sometimes he does speak to us, maybe through other means. So I would suggest that we try not to be like David and be a little short-sighted here and simply forget to ask. And maybe we should think more eternally than just earthly. What does God really want from me? How does I, or how do I fit into his plan? How do the decisions I make about this life fit into that eternal plan of his? Maybe he'll speak to me. Maybe he'll give me direction. I love the fact that David, or not David, but Paul sometimes just went, he just went as well, but he was very sensitive to when God changed direction. Try to go to Rome, God blocks it, so he takes a left. Still wanting to move, still wanting to be in God's perfect will, if you will. And so there are times where maybe we don't have that direction, and so we still move forward, still make decisions. And then we just wait to be sensitive to the Lord and wait where he may lead us. So I'm going to go ahead and wrap it up with that. But like I said, this is a a critical passage for us. And so I I was excited to be able to be into it it today with you. And um, again, hope that it gives us a good life lesson.